Well, good morning and welcome to uh, The Professor and the Hack, episode 67. I am the Hack, Hugh Rimminton, and joining me as always is the good Professor Peter Van Onselen, head of uh, uh, political, uh, the political coverage for Network 10, as well as Professor at uh, more universities than I can possibly uh, name. Uh, <laughs> you're you're welcome to name them though, Peter. So. No, 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 no need to give them any free advertising to anyone who's listening, <laughs> or, or perhaps bad advertising, depending on people's view of my opinions. Indeed. Well, look, you've been expressing some views. Lots of people have been expressing some views about uh, Dan Andrews' uh, move to extend the state of emergency in Victoria. He has uh, portrayed it initially as a common sense approach, simply bringing Victoria into line with other states, which don't need such declarations. They can extend their states of emergency um, uh, under different terms than the way that uh, the Victorian rules are set. However, he has triggered an avalanche and most of it's now dumped on his head. Yeah, well, I mean, I was, you know, I've, I've generally speaking defended Dan Andrews quite a bit during the course of this crisis from what I've perceived as being blame shifting from the Commonwealth to his state government, from what I would argue as being levels of partisanship, particularly by the state liberals in Victoria who have often acted, I think, in a way that's contra what you would want of any opposition, federal or state, at a time like this with some crazy rhetoric coming from some of them. But on this issue, I have to say, uh, I have sided with those I have not regularly sided with when it comes to Dan Andrews, a 12-month extension uh, of his ability to call a state of emergency without needing to first get the approval of the parliament, because that's what it is. He's not putting them in a 12-month state of emergency. He's taking executive rights to call one at a whim, if you like, uh, without having to first get it approved by the by the parliament, uh, I think that's just completely unnecessary. I understand that the state of emergency is going to finish on the 13th of September next month, and it was a six-month granted state of emergency. I understand that he wants to potentially extend that. I don't have a problem with that happening for three months or maybe even six months so that it goes out until mid-March next year. But why you would need a full 12 months such that the parliament doesn't get to revisit the issue in a few months' time or six months' time is utterly, utterly beyond me. Uh, so so, I, so I, I, completely, I completely agree the optics are wrong. He's misread the room. Uh, he's fed absolutely into this dictator Dan hashtag, which uh, his critics have, have thrown up towards him. His argument is, is that it's an insurance policy. He doesn't want a 12-month uh, state of emergency, but the rules are such that he has to go to Parliament each time it happens, uh, mm. and this allows him to go month by month, he says, and there'd be reviews at each time if he needed to extend it further on. In fact, it seems as though he has blown himself up in a way because he has now made it impossible, it would seem, to get this 12-month extension through the Parliament. He's now got the upper house completely against him. And let's call a spade a spade here, Hugh. I mean, he says that it's an insurance policy. Against what? Against parliamentary democracy? Against him having to recall Parliament at any point over the next 12 months because they might look to extend an existing state of emergency which only lasts for three or six months? It's, it's just a bogus argument, quite frankly, because what he, all he is saying is that he thinks that there is some risk if he gets a shorter capacity for a state of emergency extension of three or six months, like the six month one he already has, by the way, what is he saying? He's saying that there are dangers in not giving him a full year. I would argue, having spent my whole life studying political science, that the bigger danger is giving a premier and an executive the power to not ever need 
the parliament, which is democratically elected in any way, shape or form over the next 12 months. I, I think it's utter madness. So I don't think that Dan Andrews is a dictator. You know, I think that that sort of rhetoric is unhelpful. But I do think that it is him forgetting his role in a democratic parliamentary system to think that he can just kick to one side the role of an entire chamber of elected people to just reconsider at various moments in time over the next 12 months whether or not you do keep granting these, which are, let's be honest, extremely extraordinary powers that a state of emergency provides, you know, for the curtailing of rights. All he's trying to, you know, all that I'm asking for is that every three or six months, he's got to revisit the parliament to get that extended. And Hugh, just sorry, while I'm ranting, but if the parliament were to not grant that, there would have to be changed circumstances. It would be an extraordinary thing for the Premier to get overruled in that sense. There would presumably have to be some reason behind it. And that of itself is a debate that we should have if the parliament and the Premier and therefore the executive are at loggerheads, because that would be extraordinary. Well, your position is consistent with your earlier position about uh, Scott Morrison. You were critical of him uh, seeming to be um, un, uh, not encouraging parliamentary oversight of what he was doing, uh, and mm -hmm. you criticised him for exactly on exactly the same terms. But what we've now got is that he's effectively in the very act, as we speak, of being overruled by the parliament, because the upper house plainly has signalled that it'll have no part of this uh, twelve-month extension. Um, as we speak, uh, Dan Andrews is said to be in talks with crossbenchers and so on, but uh, it seems which, which, probable which that this will get done. Yeah, which is interesting to you because a few days back, rewind before the, the outrage built on this, and the, the impression seemed to be that he had the support in the upper house enough, amongst enough of the crossbench to be able to get this through. It was Labor and the Greens together, and then I think of the remaining 12 or so crossbenchers, he only needed three of them, and some, including Darren Hinch and a few others, had already indicated that they were likely to support it. So they've, they've walked back from that. I think as they've grown in realisation, uh, frankly, uh, that 12 months is unnecessary. And so if he does get rolled by the Legislative Council, then good on them. Frankly, there should be internal questions being asked, maybe there are, within the, the Labor Party about the Premier looking to exert this kind of authority. Uh, and look, he'll end up with an extension of his state of emergency. Clearly, there's grounds for the 13 September deadline to be extended. I mean, they're, in the, they're still in the midst of a pandemic. It's getting under control, but that correlates with the end of stage four lockdowns. Presumably, they will want to extend that state of emergency. And I can guarantee if you, if you a prediction I'm willing to make, I cannot imagine that the Legislative Council will block an extension of the state of emergency. They just won't grant one for 12 months. And frankly, rightly so, in my view. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Victoria, at the cost of enormous pain, unutterable pain, is now trending consistently in the direction it needs to trend. That The death toll continues every day. Uh, that remains far too high, you know, to, to, to look yeah. at the number that seems to be almost dismissed nowadays when we see numbers of eight or 10 dying every day. But, uh, but then the, the new infection rate is going in the right direction. This should be at the point when Dan Andrews could be starting to shift his rhetoric along the lines of we're not out of it yet, but thanks to your discipline, thanks to you as a community, you've done the right thing. We've got on top of this. We've all been in this together and now we've got a good result. And essentially, you know, he's been quite skillful in many ways at binding together uh, Victorians and particularly Melburnians around this. Um, but this seems to have been really blown up by this 
this business when you have Jeff Kennett calling you a megalomaniac. <laughs> Those remember the high days of Jeff Kennett. Um, you know, you've got to realise that something's come slightly amiss. Yeah, I remember the footage of Jeff Kennett, uh, you know, um, throwing dirt with a shovel over assembled journalists and, and getting a community applause for it. And he had some relatively autocratic measures in his own day. He certainly... Uh, well, I, rem I remember the shovel over the journalists, and in fact, that was a that was a classic uh, Kennett device because he, <laughs> for the next 24, 36 hours, all people talked about was whether it was appropriate for a premier to talk about uh, for a premier to be shoveling dirt over journalists at a media event, um, and they'd stop talking about the scandal of that particular yeah, exactly. day, which which we won't revisit because I think it went up going through the courts and defamations <laughs> and various other sorts of things going on. But he successfully changed the conversation, so he had his own skills at getting out of out of troubles. Um, but that was then. This is now. Um, what we saw also was essentially a, a dropping of the curtain, or perhaps a lifting of the curtain in that relationship, which has been surprisingly strong publicly between um, Morrison and Andrews, almost a, almost a state of kind of armed neutrality between the two of them, which is sustainable. Oh, it's yeah, it's changed, hasn't it? I mean, wow, you know, uh, in Parliament this week, the Treasurer has been teed off pretty directly, not implicitly, uh, at Victoria and the Premier. Uh, the Prime Minister has been weighing in even directly now, to some extent himself, uh, there has been a massive fracture between those two. I, I, you know, it'll be interesting, not just how this unfolds during the pandemic, but in the aftermath as the books get written and as, as we, you know, sort of pick over the entrails uh, thereafter about a lot of the goings on behind the scenes, because that relationship is clearly fractured. Is it, so this is a, there's a key question here. Is it fractured? It was plainly an arrangement of both uh, convenience and of the times. Is it permanently fractured? Or is it, as Labour suggests, that uh, Scott Morrison is copping pressure over the issue of uh, federal responsibility for aged care and has uh, just essentially, uh, you know, shown his guns in a way, if you want to have a crack at me in aged care, I'll damage you in a way that I've not been willing to damage you before through damaging uh, Dan, Daniel Andrews. So is it a fracturing of an arrangement um, or, or hmm. is it simply a tactical play? I think it's probably a little bit of both, but I, I, maybe the way I would think of it is that I think it is a tactical play by the Prime Minister, which has, as a consequence, fractured the relationship. I mean, Scott Morrison is very good at playing the blame game uh, and he's very good before he even gets to that point of actually just abrogating responsibility himself. From things. I mean, literally, you know, he skated past sports rorts, he skated past issues with the NDIS, you know, the, the, the list mounts. And then all of, you know, hotel quarantining, the constitutional role of the Commonwealth in quarantining, the Ruby Princess, etc., etc. Now, sometimes he's been backed up. Brett Walker's findings appear to back him up, even though there is wiggle room to debate that further when it comes to the Ruby Princess. But then aged care is one where it strikes me at least that this is just a shut and closed case of this is the federal government's responsibility. And short of him, which he's almost done by the way, short of him just putting his hand up and saying, hey, because Dan Andrews completely screwed things up in Victoria, it's hard to manage things in the aged care sector. So therefore don't blame me, blame him, because he let it all get out of control in terms of community infections, which he's almost said. <laughs> uh, that, that's his kind of only realistic attempt to try to cajole public 
sentiment around blaming Dan Andrews rather than blaming the responsible arm of government for aged care failures, which is, of course, the federal government. But yeah, we might have to do this after the break, Hugh, but I'm fascinated to get your thoughts on some of the arguments around whether actually we have stuffed up the management of aged care in the age of coronavirus or not, based on some of what we've heard at the Royal Commission versus what has become this parliamentary sitting week, the, the Prime Minister really rebutting those Royal Commission comments as opposed to rebutting Labor. Labor's simply, if you like, become a, an echo chamber of what has been said at the Royal Commission. And then the Prime Minister's gone quite hard, rejecting large elements of it. I'm fascinated to get your thoughts on some of that. Well, part of it seems to be uh, 90-something percent of aged care centres don't have a problem. It's, it, mm. it sounds a bit, uh, to me, like the old offence of the bank robber. You know, for 250 days of the year, I'm not robbing banks. So therefore, most of the time, I'm a pretty good fella. Um, it, it didn't <laughs> seem convincing to me, but uh, perhaps, uh, you know, I, I think the responsibility does lie at the Feds. We'll talk about that after a break. Uh, let's take one, PVO. See you on the other side. So you've just watched Bachelor in Paradise and you're ready to watch Lockie find love on The Bachelor, but that's not enough, is it? No, you need me, Osha, and you need you, Alicia, right? Oh, that's what they need, Osha. We are here to discuss the new season of The Bachelor with our gorgeous Bachelor, Lockie. Isn't he lovely? We're watching every episode together. We're talking through each episode together and we're offering insights that no one can really give. I'm fascinated to find out what it's like to actually be in the mansion from you. I am fascinated to know what it is like being the host of The Bachelor. I've already given away a little too much about how we actually make the show but you can hear all that on the reality bite which is uh, our brand new podcast where we talk you through each episode of the bachelor each week the reality bite cocktails and roses get it where you get your podcasts well welcome back episode 67 of the professor and the hack age care uh, is very much in frame uh, and dan andrews victoria as we've been talking about for a fair time pbo yeah, let me get your thoughts on this. So there's, there's a couple. I want to get to the issue of whether there was or wasn't a national plan, as is being debated between the Prime Minister and, and what has been said by Special Counsel assisting at the Royal Commission. But before that, there's an interesting one that happened on Tuesday in question time. Labor quoted almost verbatim what Special Counsel assisting the Royal Commission said about the extent of the aged care issue in Australia. And in terms of deaths. And he said at the Royal Commission that Australia has been the worst performer in the world when it comes to the number of aged care deaths from COVID relative to overall deaths from COVID. In other words, we've done quite well in overall terms with a low number of dead in relation to this virus. But when you look at that totality, we are doing as bad as anywhere in the world uh, if not worse than everywhere, when it comes to the number of those deaths being from within aged care facilities. So ipso facto, that looks terrible for the government. Now, the Prime Minister got up and he said that's a misuse of statistics. It's a distorting of statistics because we've had so few coronavirus deaths that it almost doesn't matter. I'm now paraphrasing here, but it almost doesn't matter that most of them, a disproportionate number compared to the rest of the world, have been in aged care because he basically said you would expect that because that's a vulnerable part of the community. And he cited New Zealand as actually doing even worse than Australia on that score. They've had far fewer deaths than us, of course, but as a percentage of overall deaths, the Prime Minister said 
more have been in aged care facilities in New Zealand than even in Australia. And his argument, of course, was no one would say that New Zealand has failed its aged care sector because of that, because their overall total number of deaths from COVID is so low. So it's a ridiculous, this was his suggestion, it's a ridiculous misuse of statistics to try to make an argument. That's a very pointed criticism. He, deli he delivered it at Labor, but Labor was quoting word for word what was said at the Royal Commission by the special counsel assisting the senior counsel there, Mr. Rosen. So what do you think? Well, what concerns me about that is, is that if he's rehearsing lines for when the final report of the Royal Commission comes down, you would expect the Royal Commission to be pretty critical on the basis of what we've seen so far. You would want the Royal Commission to be pretty critical. That's what it was set up there to do. And what has emerged would disturb most Australians. Um, I know from my own sources, the people who have been sent into Victoria uh, to help with um, uh, to help with this work, who have been appalled at the conditions in which people in aged care in some of these COVID-affected places, uh, the circumstances under which they are barely existing. Uh, and it signals a fundamental problem. Someone described it to me, is that the way in which aged care has been structured in Australia over time has been the car park model. You park your oldies in places give them next to nothing and draw your money out of them. And um, it's an appalling image. There's more to it. Uh, I, it's probably inappropriate for me to go into more detail about that, but, they, but uh, there is certainly, you know, an abundance of information that has come in that says that for a lot of people in aged care, it is, it is the worst that you can imagine. We're seeing evidence of this coming out of the Royal Commission, but the difficulty with what I've got in Scott Morrison's argument, he's willing to directly rebut through Albanese the Royal Commission's uh, statement so far. How is he going to respond when the Royal Commission finally reports? Because there could be mm. absolutely no question that this country needs a total fundamental reassessment about what we do with our frail and vulnerable aged. It'll probably cost us money. Uh, it has to cost us money. And a, and a total rethink and, and also a facing up. We've got to have the courage as a society to face up to uh, the end of life experience for many of us. We're heading in that direction, um, you know, and, and it ain't good. So, um, yeah. so these are things that, that are, are going to come out. I mean, the, the aged care business, the argument about how the deaths are, are, are disproportionately high in aged care because they're the most vulnerable and that in a sense signals that we've succeeded elsewhere is fine and well and good. It's an arguable position, but it still doesn't remove the fact that aged care has been a disaster. And also warnings were ignored. That's a critical thing. Warnings were yeah. ignored and were not passed down. Yes, I, 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 I agree. And I, I think that the, the, it's not analogous to use the New Zealand example because they haven't had uh, what has been experienced in Victoria. Okay, so they've, they've got such a low number of deaths um, that you know, aged care versus elsewhere in the, in the system. Uh, I'm not sure that that is analogous to make. I, I do think that the Prime Minister has some validity in his point that, you know, the idea that we're the worst in the world because as a percentage of overall deaths, we have more aged care deaths than anywhere else, uh, perhaps other than New Zealand. I, like, I think that's distorting when you're talking about, you know, well over 150,000 dead in the US, tens of thousands dead across European nations and so on and so forth. So I get that point. But nonetheless, as well as we have done generally compared to the rest of the world, 
a disproportionately high number of aged care deaths does signal that despite doing so well as a nation writ large, something has gone wrong in the aged care sector. Because the aged care, and, so this, and, and this commission deals with aged care. So they're not taking exactly. a broad view about COVID. They're looking at this particular segment and they're saying there's something wrong. And they exactly. should be and saying that. You'd be disappointed if they weren't saying that, if that was the numbers. And, and I mean, that comes back again to Richard Colbeck. You know, we've talked about this. Um, I, I think we've been quite generous in not playing the man too much. We've said that there should be uh, a, a cabinet level position to look at aged care. They probably long mm. should have done it. Um, Richard Colbeck is an interesting character because he was edged out of, um, his political career was over, essentially. He was bumped down the ticket into an unwinnable position in Tasmania back in 2016. He was kicked out of parliament. But then, as we may recall, the president of the Senate at that stage, Stephen Parry, a Tasmanian, uh, got hoist on the, the difficulty of citizenship and had to quit the Senate. And that meant that the next person on the list was restored to the Senate. So Richard Colbeck yeah. had gone back to private life. Suddenly he discovered, oh, no, mate, you're back in the Senate. So they put him back in the Senate. And then they found things for him to do. And he got aged care, youth and sport. He's neither youthful, he's not sporty, and he's plainly been disastrous in terms of dealing with aged care. He was a fringe player at all times. He probably wished that he never was brought back in again. And presumably he's heading for the exit. <laughs> well, you would assume so, but he was, um, my understanding is that he was important to Scott Morrison's numbers out of Tasmania when it came to the leadership. Um, so he therefore, you know, had an important role to play as often happens, to be clear, you know, Robinson Crusoe, Scott Morrison on this one, with people being rewarded and looked after uh, because of their, you know, internal party roles. But I, I believe that was a factor as well. But let me let me say this thing about this. No, okay, so, so, uh, so no, before you go on to that, mm. does that mean, and this is critical, does that mean that Scott Morrison will feel that he owes Richard Colbeck a greater debt of loyalty still than the nation feels should be owed to Richard Colbeck given the disasters in aged care? Look, I, I certainly think that he will feel like he owes him a debt of loyalty. And I certainly think that Scott Morrison will look to honour that as best he can. I also think he's ruthless enough. Very few prime ministers aren't ruthless enough that if he sees the need to cut him, he will cut him in an instant. At what else does moment. he need to see? What, well, seriously, well, I, the I, man I, cannot I, answer I, a question. <laughs> I agree, but let's, let me, here's what I envisage happening. I think he still looks after Richard Colbert, but he takes away aged care from him. So, I, I look, one of the things I think is happening, I'm not defending this, I just think this is the strategic thinking of the Prime Minister. I think he's sitting there saying, look, I don't want to be reactionary and I don't want to be see, perceived to be buckling to calls for Colbert to get removed out of aged care because that becomes me implicitly accepting that there's an issue when I'm trying to argue that we're actually doing better here than what critics say. But I have to move him. My justification for moving him will be to elevate the standing of aged care to a more senior minister, possibly into cabinet in a restructure, but I'll do it in the fullness of time. And even when I do it, Colbeck won't get dumped to the backbench. He will retain some of these other duties, perhaps the two that he's currently got around youth and sport. Okay, all right, I get that. That's the internal political workings of it. But I just wonder about those people, some of whom we've spoken to on the TV, who've seen their parents uh, lost mm. to COVID. And, and would look at a conversation about the efforts that Scott Morris is, is going to do to protect the, essentially now to protect the blushes and the dignity of, of the aged care minister to whom he- Oh, they'd be disgusted, wouldn't they? And, and you think, I, I, I want to be careful with my language here, sodden. You know, there has been a, uh, a, a absolutely profound failing in aged care. It was failing, because we know that the Royal Commission 
uh, was called because it was failing. It was failing before COVID came up over the horizon. It has failed absolutely through it. Well, Warnings were ignored for yeah. weeks and months, and the aged care minister has demonstrably proven that he cannot get his head around the most basic fundamental elements of what's in his portfolio even now. Surely the debt of loyalty from Scott Morrison is towards the voter, the vulnerable, the people of Australia, not to some mate who gave him a vote or two at the, at the leadership contest. Well, you'd, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? And, and don't get me wrong, I think just for, even from pure political, tactical and strategic perspective making, I, I suspect that if the PM is reading the tea leaves and takes the view that that sentiment you're expressing is strong enough that he's doing himself damage, then he will move very quickly and loyalty towards Colbeck will disintegrate almost instantaneously. But you also take me towards the, the other point I really want us to talk about, and, and you've alluded to this earlier. Uh, one of the things that I think is most disturbing about his defence, whether he rejects the Royal Commission claims of there being no national plan, or whether he rejects as a misuse of statistics their claim that, you know, in world terms, we've had more COVID deaths in aged care relative to overall deaths than anywhere else around the globe. The, that sentiment, that defensive sentiment of rejecting Royal Commission views on things um, because he wants to hold his competence to... To, to the fore, uh, so that he therefore has to reject criticisms. My worry is that when the time comes that the Royal Commission does hand down wider findings about problems in the aged care sector that need reform, if the attitude from an early point like now is to reject what the Royal Commission says, the government and the Prime Minister in particular is almost in a frame of mind where he risks not reacting to the wider needs that the Royal Commission highlights as, as to what needs to change in the sector because of those political calculations in the here and now. That's my big fear, Hugh. I think, I think it's a reasonable fear. And I think it's one in which the public has to uh, maintain a, a, a firm interest uh, in making sure that, that he doesn't do that because as, as we've discovered, he's, he's clever and he's slippery and he doesn't want to carry more blame uh, than he can possibly get away with. Uh, 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 you know, at any time. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but I do want to just signal something else which is coming up. Uh, the, we are expecting at any time, it may be this week or next week, the, um, the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force has been investigating these war crimes alleged uh, by our troops in um, Afghanistan. Uh, mm. there is, we're being told 55 war crimes that are likely to be, become matters uh, which will be brought before courts. Uh, the most extreme of them will not be dealt with by court-martial, they'll be dealt with an open court. Um, this will go to, this will challenge, challenge Australians. It'll challenge Australians deeply about things that are dear to us and our sense of who we are, the Anzac spirit, um, the notion of the noble warrior. Uh, it'll force us to look deeply into what was asked of men and women in a very difficult war against very seasoned insurgents. Um, mm. Some of those stories will not be pretty. Uh, reputations will be damaged. And uh, I suspect there will be a lot of shouting between those who at, at various extremes will say, um, you know, people who don't know war can't understand what it's all about. And those who say, one hopes it won't happen. You know, we went over to Afghanistan, ultimately did no bloody good at all. The place is essentially negotiating now with the Taliban. Uh, Hekmatullah, uh, the, the terrorist who killed 
uh, Australian soldiers uh, is, uh, is likely to walk free. What the hell was it all about? All we did over there was commit war crimes. Uh, the, you know, I hope as, as many who served, many of the thousands who served over there, um, get a nuanced sense from the public as to how difficult it was about what was achieved um, for all the fact that, uh, it, it, you know, that, that's, um, you know, we didn't leave any, as they say, Jeffersonian democracy in our wake. But uh, this is going to be a very bitter and difficult time over the next uh, couple of months for people attached to defence. Inevitably, uh, we will talk extensively about it once we get those details, uh, because as you say, it's, it's definitely going to be a, a hot button debating point and potentially uh, very, very um, painful um, for a lot of people. Yeah. All right. Peter, stay well and uh, we'll talk again soon. Look forward to it. Take care, mate. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.